0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, the color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene.
1: Hi, Steve. I'm excited for our special guest today. But first, you and I had talked earlier, and I know you had some reflections you wanted to share before we talked to our guest. And basically, you wanted to share your thoughts on watching this pandemic unfold and the responses to it, or in many cases, the lack of responses.
0: I'm also eager to dig into these issues with our guest. He's been friends with me and my wife, Susan, for a number of years. They worked together when Susan was chair of the board of the Center for Community Change. Um, and it's been really gratifying to watch his rise in national politics. But yeah, you're right. So first there is something I want to say and there's some reflection that I wanted to share as I've been watching all this stuff play itself out. And its the reflection is twofold. and And, and first is what the responses to this crisis have revealed about this country's politics. And then second is the opportunity that this clarity provides in terms of where we go from here. So what's been revealed was captured very well in an article by Adam Serwer of The Atlantic. It was published on May 8th entitled The Coronavirus Was an Emergency Until Trump Found Out Who Was Dying. And in that article, he writes that more and more Americans were dying was less important than who was dying. And I just think that that's incredibly, almost incomprehensibly true. And I've been saying in recent years that this president is fighting a continuation of the Civil War. I mainly meant that metaphorically. But now, the extent to which he can just ignore and shrug his shoulders at the deaths of more than 80,000 people is truly scary. I mean, after 9-11, when 3,000 people died, we went to war, suspended civil liberties, upended our society. What we're having right now is like a 9-11 every single day and the leaders just don't care. And they don't care because of who it is that's dying. And so what that tells me is that in this country, we are not playing by the same set of rules.
1: A state. Well, what, like, I think I know what you mean, but what do you mean by not playing by the same rules?
0: Right. So progressives and Democrats think that this is a democracy with democratic institutions and a set of rules and norms that are rooted in a shared social contract. But Trump and the Republicans and their right wing backers don't believe any of that. They think that the rules only apply when they infect part of the population, the white part. And Server lays this out in his article, right, he he says that there's an addendum to the social contract, which is a racial contract, and that racial contract is a codicil rendered in invisible ink stating that the rules as written do not apply to non-white people in the same way. And you're seeing that right now with the coronavirus response, right? Tens of thousands of Americans are dying, which should be seen as a national emergency of historic proportions demanding the full force of the government's response in terms of testing and masks and enlisting corporations to meet these shortages, New Deal-type programs to fight unemployment. But Trump's view is, those aren't my people. I don't care. Let them die.
1: Okay, so so that's pretty depressing. Demoralizing, to say the least. Even though I get it, and I I also believe it's true. But what's the upside? Is there an upside? Is there anything that we can do about it? Is there anything that we can... think about and, and hold in mind to know that that's just not the full picture.
0: Yeah, so that's the second part, right? So the clarity can be liberating, right? I was thinking about free your mind, right? And so it no longer be constrained by feeling like we're in this box, frankly, of this social contract that other parties are not even adhering to. And so I think that has implications in terms of politics and policy. And that it, it really invites, or if not it requires us, to reimagine our politics, reimagine public policy, and be much, much more bold, confident, and ambitious. So, in terms of politics, the rethinking is you can't bring a knife to a gunfight. And with Democrats and progressives, it's even worse, right? I mean, they want to bring a PowerPoint presentation and a well researched study to a race war. And so, you saw this with the Supreme Court nomination of Merrick Garland, right? 2016. There was a vacancy, Obama nominated Garland, and the Constitution says that the Senate must take up that nomination. But Mitch McConnell basically said, F you, not when there's a black president, and Democrats didn't know what to do about it. So we have to stop trying to persuade and change the minds of people who are trying to kill us and who we now see every day are perfectly content to watch thousands and thousands of people die as long as the majority of them don't look like them. So what we need to do is focus on building and taking power, winning elections, elevating the right leaders, strengthening organizations, and pursuing reforms that translate our population majority. And it is a majority, right? Ron Brownstein touched on that when we had him on the podcast. Translate our population majority into a governing majority.
1: And what about policy? Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: And so, yeah, similarly with policy, and I think that's going to be, we need to start doing that now, but also particularly if things go well in this fall election, is that I still remember 2009 when you know, Obama won, and we had the Senate and the House, and there was just this real timidity in terms of envisioning public policy, and that we should probably really even do a future podcast on this. But in a nutshell, it's time to reimagine the entire social contract. Right, so if it's now clear that 40% of the country and the president of that 40% have no regard for what we thought was the social contract, we shouldn't be limited in terms of our imagination by what we think that 40% will accept. And that's frequently, too frequently how politics carries itself out. We need to be as big and bold in our thinking as possible and find the most exciting and inspiring and hopeful developments in the country, lift those up as examples of what's possible and then illuminate the path for the entire country over the next several years. Healthcare care is a human right, free higher education, guaranteed income, or universal employment, Green New Deal, zero carbon emissions by 2050. We have to start that conversation now and continue that work for the next several years. So it's going to take many years to dig out of the hole that this uh, president has created for us. But the intensity of this moment and this crisis does demand thinking and plans and imagination that are commensurate with the scale of the problem that we're facing.
1: That's definitely a helpful reminder. I think it's really easy to get mired in just thinking about exactly what's happening right now. But when we start to think about the bigger picture and talk about what can be the upsides of what we're all going through now as a society, I just think that really helps make feel a little less depressing and more hopeful I've definitely been hearing from some people this notion of the importance of remembering that the fact is that with darkness always comes light. Yeah. And it is
0: Darkest a, hours before dawn.
1: Yeah, simple concept, but I really think it's true. And it's easy to forget that. But we, if we look at any period of history, really for any part of the world or any society, that's always been true. And I, I do want to remind us all, and thank you for the reminder that that's true for now too. So on that note, I'd like to pivot to introducing our guest for today's episode. Another hopeful development in our country happening right now is the leadership emerging at the state and local levels across the country. So many incredible leaders are rising to the occasion right now during this crisis. And while mainly what we're getting is just chaos and carelessness from the White House, as in we don't really care, there is fortunately really smart, caring, science-based leadership coming from state houses across the country. So it's just, that's just some really great news. One of those states that has been most in the news these past few weeks is Michigan, Michigan. And we're honored to have with us today Michigan's Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. Garland is a software engineer, activist, and the first African American to serve as Lieutenant Governor of Michigan. He is a proud Michigander and a native of Detroit, where he currently lives with his wife and three children, including twins. I always give extra prop to parents of twins. (laughs) He was one of three African-Americans elected as lieutenant governor in 2018, which, by the way, is just one of those untold stories, I feel, of that year's election cycle. The other two were in Wisconsin and Illinois. Uh, And I just wanted to quickly share a little bit about his path to politics. He managed social media for Barack Obama's first presidential campaign. And he has served as the director of new media for the Center for Community Change, which is now known as Community Change. Later on, he worked for moveon.org in Washington DC as national campaign director. So welcome. And first, I wanted to find out formalities. What what should we call you? What <laughs> title? Hey, want
2: Charlene. You. Hi, Steve. You can Hi. call me Garland. Garland um, works out really
1: well. Nice. Okay, Garland. <laughs> welcome, Garland. So nice to have you here today. Yeah.
0: Thank you so Thank you. much. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate taking the time. And it's been a real source of inspiration to me personally, you know, watching your career over the past several years, right? you come come a long way from us having lunch in D.C., talking politics when you were at Community Change. But I, I, I do have to say that one thing I didn't fully grasp when we were having our first getting to know each other just how much of a Michigander you are and as someone <laughs> as someone raised in Ohio during the Woody Hayes Bo Schemblecker football rivalry days I, I begin with a bias against Michigan folk but I guess that's a sign of y- your leadership that you're able to help me uh, transcend those divisions so
2: yeah you, you've, you've been in Ohio guys it's tough for me as well Steve so the feeling's mutual but uh I, I love you nonetheless
0: so if I do this, shout out, O-H, H, you're not going to respond, I-O. I will not. I
2: never will. <laughs> <Okay>.
0: <laughs> Great. But seriously, it's actually, it's infrequent, right, that we're able to have someone in this kind of a position. And so I actually thought it'd be useful for our listeners. And I'm curious, like, just if you could just briefly share with us, what's the day of a lieutenant governor? Like, Can you, like, walk us through your schedule, like what you did yesterday, just so we kind of get a little behind the scenes there?
2: <laughs> sure. I appreciate that. And I'm going to give you the the, you know, coronavirus version, and we can talk about how that's different than the normal version. But uh, as Charlene talked about, I start my day as a parent. So I actually have my six-year-old twins and then my 10-month-old daughter, Ruby.
1: Wow.
2: yeah, and so typically my day uh, starts with me waking up in the middle of the night, get her back to sleep <laughs> sometime between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m. <laughs> and then many mornings I'll do radio interviews with radio stations in different parts of the state of Michigan. Uh, during the pandemic, we have had twice daily leadership calls. Uh, the governor and I have a call with the senior leaders of our administration in the morning and in the evening to get a sense of emerging issues that may have come up over overnight or over the course of the day that we don't yet have uh, an owner assigned to, to to sort of figure out those issues and run them to ground. So we start with those, but typically by the time I'm on that phone call, I'm already en route to Lansing on days where I am fulfilling one of my constitutional responsibilities, which is being president of the Michigan Senate. So uh, I will be, I'm on the road to Lansing. It's about an hour and a half from here, uh, from, from where I live in Detroit. And to preside over this, the Senate, I cast a tie-breaking vote if if there ever is a 19-19 to 19 tie in our 38-member Senate. But beyond that, I'm the parliamentary officer. So literally, I swing a gavel every day, try to make sure that people are doing what they to be doing on the floor, that they're following uh, or Senate rules, that they're following the Constitution. All these things are my responsibility during Senate session. And we can get to some of the you know, uh, unfortunate events that have happened in recent Senate sessions in Michigan uh, in a little bit. In the midst of uh, in the midst of Senate session, um, we may, or when, when we have a break for recess or for the caucuses meeting as a caucus, I'll go back into my office in the Capitol and I may take other meetings or have phone calls or Zoom calls or anything like that. Uh, but after Senate session is done, these days I'm typically uh, getting back out of there and coming back home to Detroit because uh, I'm married to an amazing woman who, is uh works in for detroit public schools community district as as a curriculum the the leader of curriculum for social studies for detroit and so she is like completely overworked right now frankly um doing so many things and so i get back home so i can be useful to her as we're both trying to manage the fact that our first graders still need to learn things and that we have a baby that needs to be entertained and stuff like that so we're kind of trading off conference calls, video conferences, children. I just got finished uh, doing, doing math with my son, for example, before sitting down to talk with you guys. And our evening will continue with, uh, you know, getting dinner made, but also one of us is probably on the phone while dinner is happening or, or right before it or right after it. And then um, when I may have some media uh, in the evening, again, with either local or national. And then we'll close the day with a, a leadership call with our team. Uh, and then that's how we wrap up. And then I typically will, one of us is putting the t- the twins to bed while the other one's trying to put the baby to bed. And then we fall asleep on the couch. And that wow. is the day in the life of <laughs> Lieutenant governor wow. of the state of Michigan right now.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm like tired just listening. <laughs> just, I mean, big props. I Steve knows I talk a lot about how hard it is to be parents right now, but really big props to both of you. I mean, thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, I'd like to have us turn right now to... Find out how Michigan has been dealing with the pandemic. Can you first fill us in on when you and the governor first realized the scale of this crisis and what were some of the initial steps that you took?
2: Sure. So, the first positive test results for the coronavirus in Michigan actually happened on March 10th, which was also the night of our presidential primary oh, here. Wow. Yeah. So um, the coronavirus obviously was something that was present in the country and present in our minds before then. And so we actually, our uh, state health department has its own emergency operations center that is a subset of our state emergency operations center. And that was actually activated for monitoring purposes during the first week of February. So we tried to make sure that we had the capacity to be able to know when this would ultimately come to Michigan, knowing that it, it inevitably would. Uh, we started that on February the 3rd. So just trying to pay attention, trying to see, get a sort of survey of our public health infrastructure as best we could without having it be really tested yet. And so it was literally like the day before the primary on March 9th, you may remember the last normal presidential campaign rally. Yep. probably of 2020 was held in Detroit, Michigan at Renaissance High School with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and yeah, Cory Booker Whit- and right. Bitch, but, Gretchen Whitmer, myself. We all that were there. It just
1: seems like so long ago. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, but so so what happened in the next day, we have the primary and voting is happening. The polls closed at eight. We got a call at about 930 that there had been two positive test results. Uh, then the governor went to State Emergency Operations Center and did a press conference at 11 o'clock that night. Oh, and wow. since then, nothing has has been the same or has been like anything else in the history of the state of Michigan, frankly. And so uh, we've seen a really just, you know, just dangerous level of growth of the, of the virus that has spread through communities in our state, particularly here in my hometown of Detroit. It's virtually impossible to talk to someone in the city who doesn't know someone directly impacted. I've lost 19 people to this virus, including a, a state senator, former state senator Morris Hood III, who passed away last night. Oh my um from COVID 19, uh, amazing human being, amazing man. His family has a great history of public service to the city of Detroit, the state of Michigan. So this is something that's really real and present, and thousands of people, unfortunately, in our state, have tested positive, have had to be hospitalized, and have passed away. And so we've been trying to be as frankly decisive as early as possible. We're blessed to have some amazing public health professionals here. And I think I want I want to note, because I think it's important. Michigan actually has the most diverse leadership team of people making choices uh, on behalf of Michiganders. Uh, we have Governor Gretchen Whitmer, wh- whom I know y'all are familiar with, mm-hmm. um, myself in my position, and then the chief medical executive, the person who's driving the public health response in the state of Michigan is a black woman named Dr. Jonay Khaldun. And I think wow. that's notable mm-hmm. because when you're looking at the ways that the state of Michigan has responded and how that response has been different, part of that has been because the scale of the problem has been so much, particularly in terms of the mortality but also the fact that Michigan is the only state that has taken a statewide approach to responding to and addressing the racial disparities evident in the mortality rate of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. That I'm the, chair, I'm the chair of this coronavirus task force on racial disparities. And I, and I say that because representation matters. And, and I know Steve and Charlene, I don't need to convince you of this, but who you elect matters and their life experiences matter and how they the lenses that they apply to problem solving matter. And not only my lens as an engineer and a problem solver and a former software guy and a community organizer, But my lens as a Black man living in Detroit, the epicenter of this pandemic in our state, is part of why it bubbles up that we need to have a a full throated statewide administration level response to this, to how this is hitting different communities differently. So that's been something I've been really focusing on. But we've been trying to do our best to make sure our healthcare system doesn't get overrun. And we have seen a plateau in terms of the rate of growth of the number of new positive cases as we've ramped up testing capacity significantly. We've seen a slowdown in the rate of growth of the deaths per day, which, you know, thank God that's happening. And so we've begun to think about what are the metrics and measures of our public health infrastructure, of the ways the cases and deaths are developing that can help us think about putting in place a plan for re-engaging certain activities, but doing so in a way, again, that's mindful of the fact that this pandemic does not hit every community differently. And especially when we're talking about communities fighting persistent poverty, you know, black folks living in the city of Detroit who can't afford to buy hundreds of dollars worth of groceries so they don't have to go to the grocery store for a month, right. but instead have to not instead have to get on the bus because 30% of us don't have a car. So you have to get on the bus two, three, four times a week to go to the grocery store and you're increasing your risk of exposure because yeah. you have to get on the bus. You got you you and the, the bus driver's risk of exposure is increased and that's more likely to be a black person. Right. The people working at the grocery store are, are likely to get exposed and that's a black person. And we're trying to make sure we can put in place things to, to deal with that as well.
0: Right. So that you mentioned this, the state medical examiner. Is that her the title?
2: Her, her, the chief medical, the chief, chief medical executive.
0: Chief medical executive. How long has she been in that position?
2: We appointed her, I think, three months into our administration. I see. So
0: she's an appointee of you guys winning in 2018.
2: Yes, that's so. right. That's right. Elections have consequences. <laughs> yep.
1: So
0: what were the steps that you took, you guys officially put in place, to try to deal with this?
2: So the first thing we had to do is make sure we could actually get data from all of our local county health systems as well as our healthcare providers, which sounds simple, but that information flow has not always been smooth in our state, just like it hasn't been smooth nationally, frankly, and so we tried to make sure that we had good communication infrastructure in place there. We also, frankly, uh, had to fight and, and argue with the Trump administration to get testing capacity here in the state of Michigan, which we're still wrestling for, like pretty much every other state is wrestling for. We wanna be able to do 450,000 tests this month. Um, and we're gonna be able to hit that finally because FEMA has seen our, our plans and, and has, has begun to support us, but that wasn't an inevitability, especially early on. So what we tried to do was focus on um, you know the, our, our municipalities that had the wherewithal. Uh, we enabled them to be able to, to work to secure uh, resources and testing kits as we were trying to do so at the state level and deployed them, You know, focusing on the, the places that were most densely populated in the state because that's where uh, a lot of times this virus seemed to pop up in other states and places that were densely populated. Detroit is kind of a world gateway through our airport. And so we knew that that could be a potential uh, place for, for cases to come in. So we focused on Southeast Michigan as well as our population centers in Grand Rapids, Michigan on the west side of the state. And we were able to observe that the cases seem to be growing, but they also seem to be spreading into other parts of our our state. We have 83 counties and right now 79 of them have the presence of COVID-19 in a confirmed way. So we've been working to make sure that we could monitor not only where we have positive cases, but then also increase our testing capacity by changing our testing protocol, so we could test more people. We started out only testing people who were sick. We moved to testing people who had severe symptoms to people who had mild symptoms. We're pretty close to being able to test everyone who needs one, regardless of their level of symptoms. And that's really important because in order for us to really um, deal with some of the medical bias that may be present in testing decisions or treatment, we need to remove that at the choice point about whether a person can get tested. And we've seen some of that as well here in the state of Michigan. And, and Dr. Khaldun, one of the actions that she took, was writing to medical professionals in the state of Michigan and letting them know that that bias could have been present in their choices and to think about that when they're making choices going forward. Right.
0: And so you you do have a statewide shelter in place order, is that right?
2: We have a statewide stay home, stay safe order that is now talking about safer at home. And I, and, I, and I use that distinction because... You know, we never said people couldn't go outside. Right. Um, we, you know, what we said is that people need to do everything that they can to limit their their trips outside of their homes. They could still go to the grocery store. They could still take a walk with their children, which parents know in this case, in this time, is really important for your kids to be able to get outside and get some fresh air. But we wanted people to avoid gatherings. We we before we took the stay home, stay safe approach, we had, um, you know, placed severe limits on gatherings places of public accommodation, restaurants, bars, libraries, et cetera, to limit those things. We also did things to limit traffic in where there are vulnerable populations like nursing homes. We limited visitors in nursing homes and non-medical um, visitors to hospitals and things like that. So this all built up to the stay home, stay safe order, uh, which is still in effect um, with a few a few changes that have been made along the way as we've sort of observed how the virus has been changing in our state.
0: Right. And so then it hasn't been without controversy, right? You could talk, you know, the president, you know, tweeting at you guys, and then you had this protest recently, right, where you have people showing up at the Capitol with guns. We're actually gonna play a short clip of some of that protest. You can't
2: now lock it This is the And
0: then during that protest, right, State Senator Dana Polhanke, tweeted a picture of the protesters and she wrote in her tweet, directly above me, men with rifles yelling at us. Some of my colleagues who own bulletproof vests are wearing them. And I just have to say, I've been following politics for a long time. It's the first time I've ever heard of legislators wearing bulletproof vests. So how is that kind of played itself out in terms of impacting that's the whole dynamic of what you guys are, are, are trying to do within the in the state capital.
2: Yeah. So let's let's start with here. So this has been hard for people like, uh, you know, limiting your, your trips outside of your home has been difficult for a lot of people not being able to go to work or not being able to take care of your business is hard. And I understand that and empathize with it. The reason that we made the choice to, to put that order in place is because it's the best way to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Now, people you know, at some point decided to politicize this, no doubt fueled by the president choosing to politicize this and attack people like Gretchen Whitmer for the choices they've made on behalf of public safety. And that gave those folks the green light to frankly come and have a political rally on the steps of the Capitol in Lansing in a way that was incredibly dangerous. Right. Um, couple that with the fact that we had we had a, a state senator named Dale Zorn who wore a Confederate flag on his face as a mask because Whoa that was what he and his wife decided was a good thing for him to wear outside of the house. Wow. And I do just find it I find it really concerning that, yeah. you know, when people who people make the choice to, to to put on personal protective equipment and they choose a Confederate flag, or when people come to, to protest at the Lansing State Capitol against the allegedly against our response to the spread of COVID-19. And they grab a gun that is as tall as I am, and I'm six feet eight, uh, they grab wow a Nazi swastika, or they grab a Confederate flag to go and protest a virus you can't shoot. Um, And and it just makes you wonder what these folks were thinking before that that was the first thing they grabbed when they left their house. I think the other piece, I think think the other piece too, is that I preside over that Senate chamber where mm -hmm. those men were standing with guns. And I was looking at one of my colleagues from Detroit who was wearing a bulletproof vest it was disheartening and it was disheartening because it just reminded me of so many things one the fact that michigan is one of only two states that allows the open carry of firearms in our state capital and the fact that let's just say if it wasn't a bunch of you know white men with big guns coming to our capital if it said it was a bunch of black men with big guns coming to the capital that's right that's that could have gone very differently and and that, that is just, that's a dangerous that's a dangerous reality um, that we also uh, need to deal with uh, in our state and in our society. So what it's, what it's made me feel, Steve, is that I know this is hard. I know people are anxious, but I'm concerned that people in the, in the face of that anxiousness have chosen to do other things that are incredibly dangerous. And right now, we need to minimize the risk that we're putting to people's health and safety. And that's certainly what the governor and I are trying to do. But that has not been the case uh, for all these people, and I think that, frankly, our you know some of our Republican leadership in the legislature, which both chambers are run by the Republicans, um, have not been as accountable about this as they need to be. Right. Well, that's
0: yeah, I just want to highlight for folks it's just as a historical matter, when the Black Panthers carried guns into the California Capitol, right back in the I think it was late '60s, early '70s, that like you know really terrorized much of the country. They changed all these laws, et cetera. And then now we have the you know, flip side of that, but I want to actually ask you about the other side of this. I'm clearly right. We're in an extremely racially polarized situation in the country. The president's fanning the flames of racial resentment, talking about the China virus and all of that. But the other side is that I think that Democrats sometimes underestimate the capacity for whites to rise to the occasion. The Republicans kind of overestimate sometimes the amount of susceptibility to fear mongering. So I'm curious how that has played out for you guys. You, you said you were the you're one of the first or only states in the country to have a, a racially explicit task force. What has that been like in terms of getting support from the more progressive whites within either the government or the state for those types of
2: efforts? So the support has been overwhelmingly positive. You know, when you're talking about cultural and to to the occasion, we're overrun with ideas and offers for people to help deal with this And and recognizing that this is a task force that needs to do two things at once. It needs to act in real time because people are getting sick and losing their lives every day. And it needs to fit into the larger effort of how we are responding to racial disparities that are present in health outcomes, education outcomes, and economic outcomes, and that have been present for generations that we need to address and ultimately eradicate. And so folks have been very, very uh, receptive to that. And, and so that I felt quite supported as the chair, the, the, the set of people that we put together, both on the science side in terms of the epidemiologists and public health experts and medical doctors and infectious disease experts, but also the folks on the community side are faith leaders. Uh, we have organized labor represented on the task force because so many people who are working in those jobs to protect and sustain life are uh, low wage union members. We have education at every level, K-12, um, higher education, community colleges. We have parents, young professionals. We have people represented across the board. And it's been a diverse cross-section of, of people from, from the, all around the state of Michigan, all the way up north, uh, all the way in the Upper Peninsula and on the west side of the state and the northern part of the Lower Peninsula. And so I think the the reception has been pretty good because we've we've made the case for it. I mean, Michigan was one of the first and still is one of the sad few states to actually report out its coronavirus test results along racial and ethnic lines. Okay. The fact that every state is not doing that means that every state does not literally have the lens through which to possibly observe this challenge. Yeah. And it's also true that this, the federal government does not consistently or, nor comprehensively report demographic data from the CDC or the National Institutes of Health. So one of the, one of the members of the task force, Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, who represents Michigan's 14th district, uh, which has parts of Detroit, uh, she's called on the CDC and the NIH to do just that. Uh, for example, that's been another one of the actions that we've taken as a group, you know, sort of having her back as she made that call. So I, I think that we've seen people really support this effort, just like we've seen the overwhelming majority of people in Michigan know, do what they can to stay home and stay safe Mm -hmm. because they recognize that it keeps them safe. It keeps their household safe. It protects the people who are stepping up so courageously to to work right now because they have to. And and I think that that support's been, again, mirrored in the support for the task force.
0: You know, I actually want to I want to pivot the politics on this front of how people respond or don't respond. That's actually one of the reasons I really glad that we could have this conversation with you specifically. And we've talked about this on a prior podcast. I mean, it's, it really is not hyperbole to say that the entire Democratic presidential nomination turned on all these Democratic voters in other states trying to predict what voters in Michigan would want in a candidate. And there was even polling right in in Iowa where they asked these I, Iowa voters, uh, do you think that a white male candidate would have an easier time or harder time, black candidate, woman candidate, and that white male overwhelmingly said, oh yeah, much easier time, Black and, and female candidates would have a harder time. So this is all premised on a guess about how voters in the Midwest in general, and Michigan being one of those states would respond in light of Trump winning you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, and, and, and Pennsylvania. And so what's so fascinating is how that conventional wisdom is both wrong and then so dem- like obliterated in, in Michigan in 2018. Right? You yeah. guys won <laughs> all five constitutional <laughs> offices, did not have a single straight white male on the ticket, African-American, four women, one of the women a lesbian. So this notion about you've got to, it's, it's all, only thing that wins is a white guy is completely refuted. So how did you do that? And what was different that you guys did in 2018, the Democrats did in 2016?
2: Well, I think, Steve, it goes, I think we need to start with what people's sort of theory of change is in terms of how to win elections. And the truth is that power wins elections mm. and power is built by people coming together and building movements. And so in Michigan, uh, what, what I think happened is you saw people stepping up in ways that they never did before. And this coalition that really was representative of all parts of our state. Mm. We had turnout in Detroit in a way that hadn't happened in, in 40 years in the gubernatorial election. You had turnout in the suburbs. I mean, the other thing that happened when you're talking about that historic election in 2018, and in addition to me being the person who messed up our all woman ticket (laughs) at the top (laughs) in Michigan, uh, but we got a little history in there with uh, the highest ranking black elected official. But we also had women flip four seats in suburban Detroit, Democratic women. We won five seats in our state house for the first time in 40 years on one Uh day. Um, We've had five women flip house seats um, mostly in the suburbs of Detroit, in the state of Michigan. So what that means is you had turnout in these different places. You had you know, progressive turnout in the city, you had progressive turnout in the suburbs, you had progressive turnouts in, in rural areas that made some races competitive that, that had never been competitive before. So I think what it shows is that the, the power you can build through movement needs to be present in as many places as possible. So we need to make sure that we have strategies when it comes to voter contact and voter conversation and voter mobilization that don't leave people out. We need to not be afraid to go and talk to people where they are. Gretchen Whitmer and I won Macomb County, the infamous Macomb County. Mm-hmm. Gretchen Whitmer and I flipped Kent County, which is where Grand Rapids is, which is a, traditionally a, a Republican stronghold. The Republican candidate for lieutenant governor was from Kent County. He was the county clerk from Kent County. We won counties in the Upper Peninsula that Democrats have not won in a generation. That's because we showed up and went everywhere. Gretchen Whitmer went to all 83 counties in the primary. You know, I visited, I, I was only on the campaign for 10 weeks after I joined the ticket. And I went to 137 places. Wow. So I mean, we need to make sure that we're showing up because if Democrats show up and engage with people, we learn and then we respond to what they're saying, like we can win. And people are not afraid of an agenda that puts people first. And I think this pandemic and our pandemic response and putting people first is evidence of that. Like, like this is how you build power by showing people that you care about them, that you're gonna listen to them, that you're gonna respond to them, that you're empathetic to their uh, experiences, and that is what our party and our movement is all about. We are about people, we're not about the you know, moneyed interests that are put above people, we're not about profits, we're about how can we make life better for people, period. And I think that's how we went, and that was certainly the message that we, we sort of carried across the state, talking to people about what's important to them. And I think that's what progressive is, we make progress for people.
0: So looking at 2020 in Michigan, right, we lost about, you know, 11,000 votes. What uh, is in, being put in place that can try to you know, make up that gap and try to make sure we're able to win it um, this year?
2: So the first thing that we need to do is, is continue to build on that momentum. Our party chair, Laura Barnes, a, a Black woman, when I talk about the diversity of leadership in Michigan. You know, we really started out to make sure that we were continuing to talk to people after the 2018 election, that historic election. And we did that. We had tens of thousands of voter contacts that were taking place in 2019 and that's really important that we knocked all those doors and had all those phone conversations because there's not any door knocking happening in the state of michigan right now uh, but we're still able to contact and and build build power with those people who are talking to those people in their household and folks that they still have relationship with so we're keep continuing to build on that we're heavily investing on turnout in our urban centers because these are the places where frankly and on a state election you can run up the score and so we're trying to make sure that we um, can have as high a voter turnout as possible in cities like Detroit and Flint and Saginaw and Ben Harbor and all these kinds of places in Grand Rapids, et cetera. The third thing is we're trying to look at given this this uh, pandemic, like how are we gonna vote? Mm-hmm. So we had an election here on May 5th for some municipalities and our Secretary of State, our Democratic Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, you know. Under the authority granted by an executive order from our administration was able to just mail people ballots rather than having to go through the extra step of you filling out a request form for an absentee ballot. Because that was the safest way to vote. We did not want to happen what happened in Wisconsin during their presidential primary. And so um, We're looking at how we can continue to make resources available for local election officials to, to have what they need to be able to facilitate as much absentee voter voting as possible. We are advocating fiercely, frankly, to the federal government for resources to be put in place that will have money to states to, to fund voting by mail. I used to live in a vote-by-mail state. It's, it's a very different experience, but it's a much safer experience for, for a situation like this. Um, and we're making sure that the, at a party level, we're educating voters about how to vote absentee and the fact that it's different now than it was even two years ago. And so we're trying to build both the infrastructure and the power that we think can win. Trump won this state by 10,704 votes. And frankly, if we do if we do our job, there are eleven thousand votes in Detroit alone. Yeah. But we can really, really, I think, break this out in a big way. Um, because while that's those Trump's margin, ten, 10 seven oh four, we won in twenty eighteen. We beat the Republicans by ten points. So this can be done, and this is the momentum we're going to be able to build on to win in 2020.
1: So, Garland, I'm going to jump in here, and I wanted to ask you, another interesting aspect of that election, especially in light of discussing qualities in terms of Biden and what he should be looking at in terms of vice presidential candidates, and that's something that we've talked about in previous episodes, is the question of experience. And we know that you, correct me if I'm wrong, but did not have elected office experience. And yet here you are, you're now a statewide leader and you're elected to a statewide office. And kind of think of that as like, sometimes that's the kind of thing that only white guys get to do, right? And But now you're the lieutenant governor and you've been lieutenant governor now for a year and a half, and you're dealing with this historic pandemic. So I wanted to have you share real briefly what kind of skills and experience you feel you were able to draw on that have helped you be successful so far.
2: Sure. I think the, the, the biggest piece has come from you know my experience as a community organizer professionally for 5 years showed me that the people who are closest to our problems in our society or the people who are going through those problems are also the people who have the solutions or are closest to those solutions and so what's been critical for for my leadership has been going and being in community every single day going and meeting people where they are talking to them and listening to them that's been the toughest part of this pandemic for me professionally is not being able to do that physically, like not have that sort of tactile engagement with people, because finding other ways to communicate and engage has certainly been important, uh, but going again and meeting people where they are, hearing from them and hearing their ideas, like that's where the best ideas come from. And I learned that as a community organizer at the Center for Community Change. And so that's been something I draw on every single day as I'm thinking about You know, how can we have the right kinds of people, the right people with the the experiences that are relevant to the choices that we're making at the table. So we did things like, there had never been a body, for example, that allowed teachers to weigh in on education policy in the executive branch of Michigan's government. So we created one, right? And thinking about how we can, again, enable people with real experiences to be part of decision-making processes. I think the other piece for me is, I'm an engineer by training, I see a problem, I make I break it down into components and try to deal with those components and put back together a solution that works for people, and so I'm doing that every single day, um, whether it's with policy, whether it's with political negotiation, or, or anything in between. I'm um, trying to make sure things can work best for people.
0: Yeah. So for people who don't know, as Garland mentioned, he's six eight, uh, in terms of his height, and so his slogan he ran for uh, first was stand tall for Detroit, and then expanded out to stand tall for Michigan. That's uh, I have appreciated that,
2: uh, yeah, that the... Yeah, the, the, the advice I had was to say something that nobody else in your race can say. And That's definitely true. nobody <laughs> can say that. Very
1: creative. Very, very creative marketing and branding. I, I appreciate it too. We know you have to run, so we just have one final question. We usually like to wrap up each episode with a kind of lighter personal question, help our listeners get to know our guests better, And normally we do ask a question, but we wanted to do something a little bit different this time, which is, we're going to tell you the answer to the question and we want you to give us insight and elaborate on it. So the question is what is a job you've had that people might be surprised to learn about that you had if they didn't know more about you, right? And so we know already we've shared with our listeners that you were a software engineer first, but inquiring minds want to know what is it that led you to leave that field and enter the, the field of activist work and now politics? But yeah.
0: Were you just tired? Were you tired of making money at Microsoft?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so, well, I
2: will tell you this that like my mother thought I was a nutcase. Yeah, I'm sure she that. did. Because <laughs> it's yeah. like I read, <laughs> my mother retired from General Motors after 32 years. And, like I had a good job, a good health insurance. And she was like, why are you walking away from that? that's crazy. But um, so it, it does start with my parents, though. So my parents were super active in our neighborhood in Detroit, and in the suburban Detroit, where we live, they like ran the block club. And so I saw at a very young age, very, very hyper local, like, organizing them pulling together our neighbors in the living room. So I'm like, knocking on doors as a four year old and like giving people water at meetings, wow. so that we could talk about ways to, you know, get a public art project at this apartment building and stuff like that. Like I saw that at a very young age. Um, My parents were super engaged politically. My mother was engaged like on the local level. And while my dad was not an activist, but he was a thinker and he paid very close attention to national politics. So like me growing up, the soundtracks to my life like was Motown on the record player and C-SPAN on television. (laughs) And so that was like the background to my consciousness. I was at the University of Michigan in engineering school Uh, When our admissions policies for our undergraduate school and our law school went before the Supreme Court, when the use of race as part of the admissions decision-making process was challenged Mm -hmm. at the highest levels. Uh, So I remember helping to organize the student response to that in 2004 for our day in court. I ran an organization for Black men on campus called HEADS. It had the most college acronym you've ever heard. uh, Here, earning a destiny through honesty, eagerness, and determination of self. Like it the most nice. college thing <laughs> <laughs> ever, right? And so, and so, but it was this amazing organization where basically 50 black men, students, faculty, staff, people who lived in Ann Arbor would get together every Monday in a, in a dorm room lounge and just talk about whatever was on their minds. It was tra- It was so simple, mm-hmm. but it was transformative. And just the, the level of discussion was so amazing. And so what ended up happening is after I graduated from michigan and i moved out to seattle i missed that type of discourse and so in 2005 i started a political blog called the super spade black thought at the highest level all right superspade.com oh boy Mm. and i started it with my two best friends and the goal was to recreate this heads meeting atmosphere where i could have an intellectual conversation about the issues of the day Mm-hmm. And I was doing that in 2005. And if you go back, there were not a lot of Black people blogging about politics yeah. on a national level in 2005. So that site enabled me want to develop my voice as a writer and and to build some community with through that website. And to meet people whose job it was to be an activist, like I never met somebody who got health insurance being an activist, like that's not a real job. Right. You know, I, I got an offer to work at a nonprofit and I didn't know what a nonprofit was. It's like, what is, how do they make money? Like it's not a nonprofit, it doesn't even make sense to me. So I was doing this blog kind of on the side while I was working at Microsoft. And But I got a chance to meet amazing people in the progressive movement. But ultimately I found that the work of connecting people to their political power using what I have been uniquely trained to do to be more satisfying and more motivating than building SharePoint. So that's why I left Microsoft and that that's what put me on the path to doing what I'm doing now as a public servant. And I'm enjoying every minute of it. It is a privilege to be able to represent 10 million people here in the state of Michigan and work on their behalf every single day.
0: Well, I, I was going to say the rest is history, but as as somebody who, when this airs, will have just had a unspecified birthday. Um, (laughs) You're how old at the moment?
2: I'm sorry. That's really funny. I'm 38.
0: So the rest, there is a bright history ahead. And so seriously, I really, you know, very, you know, proud and inspired the work you've been able to do. And we're, you know, really with you as you try to, you know, navigate this crisis and grateful for what you're doing there. And really want to thank you for taking the time to join us.
2: Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Charlene. You you guys, this show is is wonderful, and I really appreciate the insights you share on this podcast. I appreciate the insights that you share as writers and thinkers for people who are are showing how our movement can not only move forward but grow forward and and be as aggressive and imaginative as it possibly can be. Because that's what we need to do to take on the challenges that we face. So so thank you for being a, a model of that. We appreciate it.
0: Take care. Thank you. Okay, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. I'd like to thank our special guest, Michigan Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. You can follow him on Twitter, where his handle is at Gilchrist. That's L-T-G-O-V-G-I-L-C-H-R-I-S-T, all one word. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.